Just over a year ago, I submitted a manuscript titled The Temporally Integrated Causality Landscape, a Theoretical Framework for Consciousness and Meaning. Because I produced the ideas contained in that paper on my own, with heavy reference to pre-existing evidence and theory, I decided to submit it on my own as its sole author. If I were a professor, that decision would have been pretty standard. But as a postdoctoral fellow working in a professor's laboratory, the decision carried some risk. Normally, research is conducted largely by graduate students and postdocs in a collaborative way, often across more than one lab. The data are analyzed and the primary author works with their mentor, the professor at the head of the lab, to produce and submit a research paper. All of this is necessary to being productive in science because it allows us to take advantage of the time, expertise, and resources of several different collaborators. And the financial resources acquired through competitive grants are critical in the process. In the end, we write a manuscript with the primary author listed first and the head of the lab listed last. The role of the senior author is critical. First, it is generally his or her lab in which the study takes place. Second, they have the most expertise in the field of study. Third, their experience in previous publications lend credibility to the new submission. I had my mentor's support, and he would have been willing to work with me on this paper. But I decided with his blessing to do the project on my own. This was justified by the fact that the work did not require grant money and the field of consciousness is outside of my mentor's research purview. Nevertheless, it was risky. Christoph Koch advised me to join a lab that is doing good consciousness work like that of Giulio Tononi. There was a good chance that working on my own I would fall into some critical error. I would miss something really important that the editor or the reviewers would immediately discover, so the paper would be rejected. Secondly, since I'm not a well-known neuroscientist with a long list of previous publications, the reviewers would not be apt to give me the benefit of the doubt. Nevertheless, that was my decision. To be honest with you, I wanted to prove to myself and the world that I could do it on my own. Last Friday, I was informed by the editor that the paper has been accepted. It will be published in the journal, of, uh, the journal Consciousness and Cognition. My night science is about to see the light of day. In honor of that good news, this episode will explore the important idea of temporal continuity in consciousness. Thinking about time and conscious experience was critical in the development of my framework. What is a moment of conscious experience? The term moment is flexible. Perhaps it refers to a half of a second, maybe a few seconds. But with regard to conscious experience specifically, what is the shortest duration of detectable perception? We know from watching films, which have a frame rate, that visual processing is outpaced by the rapid flutter of changing photographs projected on the cinema screen. We see the illusion of stable scenes with fluidly moving characters, not a series of 24 stills per second. An airplane propeller rotates at such a speed that we see it as a single circular object, not as a pair of discrete blades in motion. Likewise, it seems to me that if a series of audio tones were presented at intervals of a few per second, we would experience them as discrete sounds, but at some rapid rate of presentation, we would experience one continuous tone. After all, the pressure waves that we hear as sounds are occurring at some fast frequency, and the resulting sound of a plucked guitar string, for example, is a continuous note. In The Principles of Psychology, William James wrote, quote, Consciousness does not appear to itself chopped up in bits. 
Such words as chain or train do not describe it fitly as it presents itself in the first instance. It is nothing jointed. It flows. A river or a stream are the metaphors by which it is most naturally described. In talking of it hereafter, let us call it the stream of thought, of consciousness, or of subjective life." Unquote. Stream of consciousness, as used by James, refers to the continuity of subjective experience over time. John Searle's definition of consciousness admits to temporal continuity too. In The Mystery of Consciousness, he wrote, quote, Consciousness refers to those states of sentience and awareness that typically begin when we awake from a dreamless sleep and continue until we go to sleep again, or fall into a coma, or die, or otherwise become unconscious." Unquote. At least in terms of phenomenology, conscious experience seems to proceed as a continuum in which specific contents come and go and change. Consciousness itself is continuous over time. My framework, the Temporally Integrated Causality Landscape, TICL, rests strongly on this idea. While my theory was highly influenced by integrated information theory, IIT, it differs substantially from it because I insist on accounting for the sense of temporal continuity. In IIT, the exclusion principle says that conscious experiences have definite borders and a particular spatial and temporal grain. In a review article, Alex Holcomb, speaking of visual processing, writes, quote, Continuous processing, although there is no frame rate because discrete snapshots are not taken, the system still can be said to have a temporal grain. The grain, or temporal interval, over which the system blurs information together is known as temporal resolution. A movie camera has one temporal resolution reflecting its frame rate, but the visual system has multiple temporal resolutions." Unquote. Holcomb describes a variety of visual experiments which test the capacity to perceive events that appear briefly or change at a very rapid rate. For example, he describes an experiment in which a field of white dots is situated next to a field of black dots on a screen. The two fields of dots are shown alternately to change between black and white, so that when one field is white, the other is black. The boundary between the two fields is perceived at rates as fast as 30 hertz. But at faster rates, the subject sees an averaged visual field that is indistinguishable from the gray background. So edges and textural boundaries can be perceived with a very small temporal grain. A contrasting example is the binding of form and color. Holcomb describes an experiment in which two patterns of dots that form distinct shapes, one with dots of red and the other dots of green, are alternated. The researchers found that rates of alternation faster than several per second are difficult to detect as shape-color pairings. This was the case even though the colors and shapes themselves were easy for subjects to identify. In his review article, Holcomb concludes that the detection of depth, edges, and the direction of motion occur very rapidly, or have a fine temporal grain. By contrast, he shows that other experiments, including word detection and the pairing of motion and color, occur with a coarse temporal grain. But the question I posed was this, what is a moment of conscious experience? A conscious experience is not a unimodal perceptual event. What I mean to say is that even if the processing of perceptual visual information results in a temporal grain, that does not imply that conscious experiences have a temporal grain. Conscious experiences are a composition of different contents, both perceptual and conceptual. A moment of conscious experience, then, is a conglomeration of sensory modalities, 
each composed of many individual percepts, and also any thoughts or feelings or associations that come along with them. I propose that there is no single temporal grain for consciousness. The contents of a conscious experience, according to the evidence, are processed such that they have their own temporal grains. In vision alone, Holcomb sees at least two different temporal grains of processing, but different stimuli have different times of onset. Is there some mechanism by which stimuli across all sensory modalities are aligned into a common frame? I don't think so. But integrated information theory, IIT, says that there must be. This is a foundational area of disagreement between my theoretical framework and IIT, namely the temporal continuity of consciousness. So allow me to go into the principles upon which IIT is based to see if I can mount a tenable attack. IIT is constructed upon five claims or axioms. The point in the defensive line against which I intend to strike in the argument of this episode is the fifth axiom, the axiom of exclusion. For this episode, I will quickly cover axioms one through four and focus on the axiom of exclusion. The first axiom of IIT states that experience exists intrinsically. For IIT, this means that the conscious experience exists to itself. The second axiom of IIT says that experiences are structured and that experiences are composed of phenomenal distinctions. The third axiom says that an experience is specific. The fourth axiom states that an experience is unitary. So far these seem pretty reasonable. But the fifth axiom is that of exclusion. This states that experiences, with all of their contents, are definite in spatial and temporal grain. A review article by Giulio Tononi, Melanie Boli, Marcello Massimini, and Christoph Koch says, quote, The axiom of exclusion states that an experience is definite in its content and spatiotemporal grain. For example, in the scene depicted in figure one, the content of my present experience includes seeing my hands on the piano, the books on the piano, one of which is blue, and so on. But I am not having an experience with less content. For example, the same scene in black and white, lacking the phenomenal distinction between color and not colored, or with more content, for example, including the additional phenomenal distinction of feeling one's blood pressure as high or low. The duration of the instant of consciousness is also definite, ranging from a few tens of milliseconds to a few hundred milliseconds, rather than lasting a few microseconds or a few minutes. The corresponding postulate states that the cause-effect structure specified by the physical substrate of consciousness must also be definite. It must specify a definite set of cause-effect repertoires over a definite set of elements, neither less nor more, at a, at a definite spatial-temporal grain, neither finer nor coarser." Unquote. This implies that there is a unit of time over which an experience occurs, and that these units occur one after another in sequence. In my opinion, IIT's axiom of exclusion conflates the contents of consciousness with consciousness itself. If you replace the idea of an experience with a particular content of an experience in the passage I just read, then exclusion would make more sense to me. It does seem to me that a particular conscious content within an experience might have, as they say, a definite spatio-temporal grain, neither finer nor coarser. The conclusion of IIT that the physical substrate of consciousness must be a maximum of intrinsic cause-effect power relies upon the axiom of exclusion. I find it difficult to accept the claim that conscious experiences as a whole have a definite temporal grain. My framework, 
the TICL offers an alternative view. According to the TICL, conscious experiences consist of a composition of independent contents that are united because they are produced by networks within a single large integrated thalamocortical entity, a system. The system is massive and it consists of all neuronal elements which are causally integrated. I have utilized the term temporally integrated causality to describe the amount of causality over the amount of time it requires. Within the system, the firing activity of any neuronal element will exhibit some amount of causality on its direct and indirect targets. Because the target membrane potentials will be quickly driven back to resting state, a short window of time occurs over which incoming causalities can summate. I have hypothesized that the system consists of all neuronal elements that are integrated such that they have an irreducible, non-zero level of temporally integrated causality. The system therefore exists continually as long as the subject is conscious. This answers to the observations of William James and John Searle. Within the system, there are groups of neurons which exhibit higher degrees of temporally integrated causality upon one another. These are what I have called subsystems. They are integrated entities within a larger integrated entity. I estimate that a system might contain hundreds or thousands of discrete or overlapping subsystems in any given second. The system persists as the subsystems come and go. The activity of each subsystem provides content that is experienced in a particular way by the system. The whole system gives us the point of view from which the subsystems are qualitatively felt. According to the TICL, the amount of temporally integrated causality for the system provides a threshold for conscious contents. A subsystem only exists to the extent that it has a higher level of temporally integrated causality among its elements than does the whole system among its elements. According to the TICL, conscious contents each have a particular spatial and temporal grain since they each emerge into and subsequently exit from the conscious composition according to their own dynamics. But since consciousness is a composition of many contents, the experience as a whole does not have a clear beginning or ending. Rather, as James pointed out, conscious experience flows continually. So the subsystems which underlie specific contents, like visual percepts, accord well with the evidence reviewed by Holcomb. What happens now? My theoretical framework will be published online very soon. This moment will mark an important moment in my career. For good or ill, the neuroscience community, especially within the consciousness field, will be able to read and respond to what I have proposed. This has been one of the major difficulties for me in trying to bootstrap a career in consciousness science. It is nearly impossible to capture the attention of the field without pre-existing credibility. And it makes a lot of sense that this should be so. After all, crackpot theories about consciousness abound. If I were an established professional in the field, with plenty of work to do and papers to read and students to teach, and I received an email out of the blue from a no-name postdoc at Michigan claiming to have answers to the hardest problem ever posed, I'd probably give it little credence. But with the paper coming out of a well-known journal, accepted by the editor and reviewed by two anonymous experts, maybe I can get the attention of the field after all. And you know what? If I get into that position someday, if I become that established professional with plenty of work to do and students needing my attention. I hope I don't forget this moment. I hope I keep an open mind because there is undiscovered talent out there and something of true value and achievement might be languishing in my inbox. Mm -hmm.